1: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Roy Henry Vickers is a Grammy Award-nominated Canadian First Nations artist. Roy is one of Canada's most revered artists. His work can be found in the Vancouver airport and galleries around the world. I've been a fan of Roy since I was a teenager, so I was excited to have the opportunity to sit down with him at his home on the Skeena River. In this episode of Anchored, Roy and I discuss culture and history and the story of how he got to where he is today. We take a deeper look at our connection with nature, reflect on a dark part of Canada's history, and explore the desire to be our best selves.
2: I was born in Greenville on the Nass River in... 1946, June the 4th, when the spring salmon were just starting up the river. A week later, I was baptized in St. Peter's Anglican Church in Kitkatla, which is my home village.
1: So this is all northern British Columbia. All northern, yeah. What about your parents? Where were they from?
2: Mum was from B.C. She was born in Saskatchewan to English parents who emigrated to Canada. She grew up in Vancouver, really. And she met my dad um, in the village of Kitkata. So okay. So she was traveling the North Country, preparing to go overseas as a nurse.
1: So your dad was living in the village. Yeah. Your dad's indigenous?
2: <clears throat> my dad is Haida, Simshan, and Heiltsuk from Bella Bella. And my mom is, I thought she was English, but I just did the 23 the the DNA. Yeah. And found that on the Caucasian side of me... I'm more Irish than I am English, probably as much Norwegian as I am English. So a real Canuck I am, that's
1: for sure. You have to excuse me, I'm not very politically correct. So she's Caucasian. Yeah. So back then, what was it like for, I mean, were there a lot of Caucasian women falling for indigenous men?
2: Absolutely not. (laughs)
1: Okay, I was going to say, it's your charm.
2: It was was a shocker. Well, dad was a good looking guy and he was a jock, a jock. Hunter, fisherman, basketball player, and when this white lady came into the village, she took note of it pretty quickly and wasn't long before they had a little spark going. And, <laughs> and I'm the firstborn of six children from mom and dad, and they stayed together there through the whole marriage. But in the 1940s, so I was born in 46. So she got there, I think, in 45. And she was actually doing field nurse training to go overseas as a missionary. And uh, my dad put an end to those plans. <laughs> so she had six kids. And I always say we were her mission field for the, right. for the rest of her life. Well, I got to tell you the story. So I was born in the spring in Greenville, so right at the end of the school year. And Mum was teaching right up until uh, he was born. And the evening of June the 3rd, 1946, she went into labor. And she wanted to get to Prince Rupert to the hospital to have her baby. And the old lady in the village, the head midwife who was Blind. So she was the boss of the younger women who were all midwives because nobody went to the hospital to have babies.
1: Oh, okay. They had
2: them in the village. Sure. But Mum was not going to do that. And the old lady just said, ain, Ein ain Grace, am? no, no, Grace, it's not good. And mom said, well, why? And she said, well, the tide's out. The tide's gone down and the boats are all dried up on the beach. By the time the tide goes right out and comes back in, you will already have the baby. And my mom just panicked. And there, she didn't want to have it in the little teacherage that they were in because there was no room. Have it. Have me. <laughs> <laughs> so she got the, the people in the village to whitewash the back room of the schoolhouse. And that's where I was born. I was born in school. And to you've a, stayed there ever teacher. since. Right? yeah. <laughs> so I've been a student all my life. And, right. I, and, and I you're still
1: married. And today you're married to a school teacher. That's right, right?
2: yeah. <laughs> and stop. two sisters who were teachers. But the funny thing about this, the birth is the next day on June 4th, uh, I was born about seven o'clock in the morning. And by the time it was all over and mom was all cleaned up and resting, they had a makeshift crib to put me in because they weren't ready for this. And Dad was holding mum mum's head in his lap, and mum says Dad started to laugh, and he was just belly laughing. And I said, "What is it, Art? What is it?" And he said, "Well, look at the look at the baby, the box, the crib. And It was a cardboard box because that's all they could find. And on the end of it was." Mine's fifty seven, <laughs> <So, Perfect. laughs> yeah, fifty seven varieties of nationalities from around the world,
1: which you're finding out is almost <laughs> close to true at this point.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Then what happened? You stayed in green. You, I'm uh, assuming k- you stayed there.
2: Yeah. No, we never stayed there. A week later, when she had me, then she f- quit teaching. That was the end of the school year. I don't know how the what who who stepped in or whether they just stopped teaching in those days and didn't continue, but that's the way it was. And so I grew up in the village of Kitkatla as we were there a week later.
1: Oh, I see. Now it makes sense. Okay,
2: I oh, got you. Oh, right. And the house that we lived in, the building that we lived in, was the old school. No wonder I became <laughs> such a teacher with right. my artwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we lived in this big, old schoolhouse, and it was really high, and the the walls were only eight feet high, and there was no ceiling on the bedrooms or anything, so we, as kids, we would love to get up on the walls and walk around on the top of the walls in between all the rooms.
1: How long did you guys stay there for?
2: Until I was nine, so that was 46, 55, and we came up the line, we called it, up the river a couple of times to Hazleton to visit. People called Marshalls, and they had a trucking company called Marshall Brothers Trucking. And their house, the house is still in in the middle of town, the gray building with a couple of uh, old steamboat parts outside in the front.
1: Oh, like downtown? Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, the big. Oh, SWCC is in there.
1: Yeah, 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 I was just going to say, it sounds like I'm envisioning Shannon's place.
2: And every time I go up those stairs to SWCC, I remember from the time I was a little kid going up those stairs. So 70, 60 something years of going up those stairs. So Hazelton was a really special place for me, but my first 9 years in Kitcatla were um mum was a school teacher there. There was no other school teacher. Grades 1 to 7 in one classroom and that was it. But I my memories of the village are Winter time, like right now, everybody, my grandpa especially, would get really excited because it was time to get out of the village and go out to the trap line. And the trap line was way down Prince of Channel, so like six hours from the village. And I loved going out on the trap line with them. So I grew up trapping and fishing. And some of my fondest memories are with my dad's dad out on the trap line. And he was a storyteller, so no wonder I'm a storyteller today because he told me so many stories, and I remember the ones that had a big impact on me. So that, I guess that fall before winter came, we moved into a tiny little house in Two Mile, which is two miles out of Hazelden. And uh, that's where we lived, in this tiny little cabin. And so that was my introduction to Hazleton was in this big field on both sides of the house. We had a coal burning stove in the kitchen. And I think that was the only heat in the house. I don't remember anything else about that except that there was lots of snow. It was really cold and we weren't used to lots of snow down on the coast. So Hazleton was a, it was a, Big change from the village. People had cars and you could ride a bus to school and all kinds of crazy things. Was your
1: mom teaching?
2: Mom was teaching, oh yeah.
1: What was your dad doing?
2: My dad was working in the mill in the summer. And uh, I guess in the spring, whenever halibut season was, he was on the halibut boats and gone for months. Two months at a time, were
1: you fishing as well, or just trapping and
2: fishing, oh yeah, I grew up on a gill netter, so i my memories of being with my grandfather again on the gill netter we'd work the tides, so there's no go to bed at ten o'clock and get up at six or anything like that. You slept between tides, and the best fishing is right at slack tide, so high slack or low slack didn't matter, and they were like ten hours apart, so you would fish. Fairly hard through the slack tides. And when the tide was running, then you weren't, you could relax a little bit and sleep and do that sort of stuff. But I, my memories are sitting on the deck of Grandpa's gill netter while he was sleeping (laughs) and watching the net. And it was my job just to keep an eye on the net and make sure everything was good. And uh, if the tide kind of wrapped us up and we started backing up on the net, then I would have wake him up and he'd start the boat up and pull the net out straight again and things like that. And if too many fish were hitting the net and there was a bunch of cork sinking, then I'd wake him up and say, oh, we're, we got a full load here. We got to get the, get the sock guy in.
1: Was it just the two of you on the boat? Yeah. So here's something I'm kind of stepping around just because I don't understand. When I used to be a fishing guide on the Fraser, there'd be the commercial openings and then there'd be the like the native openings. Oh, yeah. What's the proper terminology for it?
2: I don't know. Indigenous, First Nations. Okay, so
1: the First Nations yeah. fisheries, was that what that was? was no, did he have a license for no that?
2: No such thing in those days. Didn't exist? No. Actually, I didn't even know that my mom was white until I was... 17 years old
1: what do you mean but did you don't look she, she was
2: my mom no there was no in the village of kitkatla there were two white people my mom and the priest
1: and they were both accepted by the village oh
2: heck yeah nobody even there was no <laughs> no you, you didn't talk about indians and white people never
1: i thought it would have been the opposite no, back then
2: no It was totally different than today.
1: Because that was my next question, is how immersed were you in in the culture?
2: No discrimination whatsoever. No culture whatsoever. It was all um, Kit Katla is still a dry reserve. Alcohol was never allowed in the village. uh, By whom? Who said that? By the people, by the chiefs, yeah, Um, because they were the bosses in the village, right? And when Mum married Dad, the chief of the Eagles in the village adopted her because First Nations are matrilineal. So all of your stories and your names, cultural names, are passed down from mother to children. And I learned this much later in my life, but they just said, "Well, we somebody has to adopt Grace because she can't be living here and have children who don't have any stories and." no crests or anything, and so she was adopted by the eagles, and that's why you see these two eagles in the house here.
1: Let me set the stage for people who, who are just listening. Yep. I'm sitting in Roy's house right now, his beautiful family's home, and we're, look, we're on the Skina, looking at one of the most spectacular pieces of water I've ever seen, and as soon as you walk in, framing the open windows to the Skina, there are these two absolutely spectacular totem poles that Roy has made of course, because these Roy Bickers. How how tall are these, each of these? Uh, Seven feet. And they're eagles? They're eagles. Okay. So I was going to wait to dive into that, but let's just dive right into it. Totem poles are something that have fascinated me my entire life because when I was in school, I learned that they tell stories. Can you tell me uh, a little bit more about these ones and then talk to me about totem poles as a whole?
2: Well, there's so many. That's another whole podcast. <laughs> I, know. It really is. I think we could sit yep. down
1: for probably a good dozen podcasts.
2: Yeah, we could probably do 40 minutes just on totems.
1: Okay, do you want to, I mean, I want to pick your brain about a million things today, so, yeah. so let's... we'll kind of
2: move around a little bit. Sure. First of all, totem, these totems are crest totems.
1: Yeah, what does that mean? So
2: my crest is the eagle.
1: Well, where does a family get a crest from?
2: They're handed down from generation to generation through the parents. My dad's dad's crest was a raven. My grandpa Henry was a raven. My dad was a whale because his mother was a whale and her mother was a whale. And her mother's mother was a whale, and her mother's, mother's 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 mother was a whale. So the crest passes down from mother to children. And that's the reason that Mum was adopted, because she didn't have a crest. Right. And the people wanted us to grow up in the village and have crests, have the eagle as our crest. And so eagle, whale, raven, and wolf are the four main crests in any Simshan village, and actually here too. The whale is gisgast, uh, it's called here. So when they show a whale totem here, they show a, a fireweed coming out of the whale's blowhole. So gisgast, has is fireweed, ah, which leads to something else. When I was born in Greenville, the old lady who was in charge of the birthing she had the right to name me, so your your parents don't get to name you. The elder who's in charge of the birthing is the one that puts the name on a child. So I was born, and Mum said, uh, this old lady just lifted me up and said, uh, We hast, we hast, we hast. Big fireweed is the interpretation for it. So my first name wasn't Roy. It was big fireweed.
1: Why did you change it?
2: Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> when I was a week old, then they put my my Uncle Roy's name on me and my grandfather Henry's name on me. And so when I was baptized as a Christian outside of the culture, that's when I got the English names.
1: Whose idea was it to do the baptism?
2: Mom um, and Dad. Yeah, everybody in the village was. They were really staunch anglicans and it was like the high church of england so the only difference i could see between anglicans and catholics growing up was we didn't do the genuflect and hail mary sort of thing but everything else was identical
1: But you got to maintain your own culture. I asked you earlier if you guys had culture. You said no culture. No,
2: No, everybody was Christian. If you went into a chief's home, they would have lace doilies and lace curtains and silverware and piano.
1: But they kept crests.
2: But they kept their crests. So they, in the north, the the change from from the traditional culture to the colonizers culture was instant. Um, because the northern people we're our ancestors are all business people. So we have the ulikan from the Skina and the Ulican from the Nass and that Greece mm-hmm. was gold. Yeah. In the old days. Uh, so, just people
1: listening that's a it's a small fish like a like a smelter or a herring yeah, or something yeah, like that.
2: Yeah. yeah. And so the people were always traders and business people. So if you wanted a canoe, a big hide-a-canoe, well, you traded for grease.
1: Oh, if wow. If you
2: wanted anything, you traded, because there is no money.
1: What did they do with the grease? Was this for burning? Eating. Oh, for consumption, yeah. okay. Yeah.
2: Ulican grease was the vegetable of the Northwest Coast. And it's still, it's full of, if you ask, um, I don't know who the people are that figure out the nutrients in it, but it was the staple of all of the Northwest Coast. So it was like gold. And so in before money came, it was what you could get from nature and trade for what you wanted from someone else. So the big trades when I was a kid were for moose meat and soap berries. They were the two prize things on the coast. So people on the coast always wanted moose meat from people up here. So growing up in the village, I never heard a song from our ancestors, from my father's people. I never saw a potlatch or a feast. It was all like a white man. But I didn't know that. I, I It's just life to me, right? So I'm just growing up in this... Beautiful village with really wonderful people. Never knew a drunk until I was 14 years old, and I didn't know what it was. Didn't know what was wrong with them. It was my dad. who was here in Hazleton. He wanted me to cook him bacon and eggs at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday because the mill had shut down and the guys were all drinking. And so he came home drunk and wanted me to cook him bacon and eggs. And I said to my buddy, gee, something's wrong with my dad. He can't talk properly and he wants me to make him breakfast and he just laughed and he said oh he's drunk the first time I saw a drunk wow so I grew up in a village where my grandfather who never went to school raised nine children successfully and uh, taught them how to hunt and fish and exist and that's it
1: but now, I mean, there's so much history, and obviously, we can only touch on so much oh, of it. Man, but
2: there's so much.
1: I just so did the elders ever tell you about a bit of this culture? I mean, how does a white man just come in and say, "Here are Bibles. This is the way of life," and all of these years of, of your own culture are you can just forget about them? How does that happen?
2: Uh, well, people didn't. People just took on the colonizer's way of life because. DALA. My, my granny always called it DALA. That's money, white man's money. So I grew up with people paying much attention to money. And that switch was made very easy because the people were always about how to acquire something to make their life more comfortable. So okay. as soon as money came, then everybody dropped the old ways and took on the new ways.
1: What year do you think all of that began to transpire?
2: Um I think immediately. I think when I was a child.
1: Okay. So in your time?
2: So in my time when when kids had to go to school, they were sent to residential schools. I was fortunate that I didn't have to do that, but lots of guys my age Went away to residential school.
1: Was this when the government came in and took people out of their homes and put them into schools?
2: Yes. Yeah. Mm. Police came and took them. People were always afraid of the cops. Always. Because what, they were the ones that came and took the kids from their families.
1: What year did all of that start? You know, and I so ignorantly, because they don't teach this in school.
2: No, they don't. And we should be teaching this in school.
1: I'm disgusted that I didn't learn about this till I would have been like 29. And the worst part about this, Roy, is I learned about it in Australia. In Australia? Well, I would have been 30. I learned about it in Australia and was like, that's disgusting. I can't believe that that you guys did that. And then someone here said, hold on, April, we did it here too. Yeah. Do you want to, I mean, everybody who's listening right now is probably rolling their eyes at me saying, gosh, how ignorant are you? But for the one person who doesn't know what I'm talking about, can you just explain what happened?
2: For so many people, this, this is what needs to be done today. This is what needs to be done for 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 you for people to be asking questions like this and finding out the truth of what's happened so we're just we're gonna jump around all over the place
1: sorry, and I know it's hard
2: yeah um when my grandmother was taken from her family. That was the first time it happened in the village of Kit Katla. And Kit Katla is has been continuously inhabited for over 5,000 years. Continuously. People have been there. It's the oldest continuously inhabited village that I know of in North America, all of North America. There's older sites, 10,000, 15,000 years old, but nobody lives there and nobody's been there. Or they moved away and they came back. But this village that I come from, has there have been people there since the time of the flood. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there, they have legends. I grew up with one of the stories of the flood told to me over and over and over again. So where were we going with
1: this? Your grandma. I didn't realize it was that that long ago because your grandma was from what time period? 18-something. Uh, so that's when this started? Yeah. I thought it was a 1900s thing. No. no. Oh. No. But wasn't British Columbia not even a province until the 1800s, somewhere in there? Mid-1800s? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what happens? The Euros cut. The people come in from Europe.
2: Okay. If you look at... This is the other thing. They they The whole education system is designed by the government and the government and the churches were the felons who began who stole children from their parents put them into residential schools children were abused raped it's it's horrendous and and people just don't know this and people don't want to hear it but until we begin speaking of it Well, let's put it this way. As a podcaster, you know that storytelling is very important. And as a storyteller, I learned decades ago that storytelling is the ointment of the healer. And it's your story that you're meant to tell, not somebody else's. The most important story we have to share with the world is ours. So for me... Nobody has wanted to hear the story. Nobody wanted to hear my dad's story or my grandmother's story because it's just too brutal and just too ugly, and who wants to hear that? And, and people would feel guilty. And so the government system and the schools have swept it all under the carpet and on purpose the genocide the cultural genocide of my father's peoples was never spoken of until my generation till now so it we we have people living on reserves who are lost they're lost they they don't know their rivers anymore they don't know the mountains they don't know their territory uh, because they turned their backs on the old way of living, and in 1958, when I was living in Two I remember when welfare, when the welfare system came in, and we called them called ourselves Indians in those days. When and when I was, I learned this later when I left a couple of a year and a half later. I'm in Victoria, and I came across discrimination for the first time because of the color of my skin. And I didn't know what it was. I thought, "What the heck? Why? What? What's? Why would he not like me when he doesn't even know who I am?"
1: Were you in school? I
2: was in Oak Bay High School in Victoria, which is a massive uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant school. And when I when I looked at my pictures after, I realized that uh, people looked at me differently because of the color of my skin i saw all these white faces and this one dark brown face in the middle of them all because at the end of the year in june is when when your pictures are taken and by then i already had my <laughs> my summer Sunday. can going <laughs> yeah. really good and so i began to look at who i am and discovered that i wasn't just simshan that i was hiltsuk and haida and Then I started asking questions, and I found out very quickly from my my grandmother a little bit of the hell that she went through being taken away from her family. And she wouldn't tell me a lot of the stories. I never, ever did. Uh, I found out from other people the, the atrocities that were happening in residential schools. And it's no wonder that we grew up scared of teachers, scared of the church, like just lived in fear of of this. And it wasn't, to me, that wasn't white people. That was just teachers at the church. So it wasn't until I was 17 years old when I began to realize that people look at me differently, that I wanted to find out, well, who am I? And why do they not like me because of the color of my skin? When I found out that this guy didn't like me because all Indians are lazy, all Indians are drunks and all Indians live on welfare. <laughs> I burst out laughing and my friend Bill said to me, "Why is that so funny?" I said, "Well, because it's so ignorant." I didn't I didn't know what a drunk was until I was 14 years old. I didn't even see drunks when I grew up. There were no drunks in my village. There was no welfare in my village. People worked. Nobody could afford to be lazy because <laughs> you had to hunt, you had to fish, you had to go after firewood and cut the firewood up and make sure it was all ready for the wintertime, or you were cold. You'd freeze.
1: Do you think that people were lost back then?
2: It began then. Okay. So my dad, my dad's mum, and then my dad carried on the abuses that they dealt with in school. So if you don't heal, then you will continue to be the way you are. And so I grew up with people who were angry, short-tempered, including myself, because that's what I learned. But I never knew what the anger was about.
1: Because it's just an open wound that just keeps bleeding.
2: When I found out, well, I still just... I'm choked up just talking about it. Because I, I looked differently at all of those people that I didn't like because of their behavior and realized that they grew up in a hell. And no wonder they're the way they are.
1: But they came back. Your grandma came back. She came back, yeah.
2: She lived in the village. She perpetrated Christianity and turned her back on her culture in public, in private, and I didn't realize this, but she would sing in her language when we weren't around. And once, uh, when I was 17 or 18, I made a deerskin drum and I brought it and I was really proud of it and I showed it to her and she just took it from me and she started playing and... Her and Grandpa started singing, Aww. and they were singing their love song. <laughs> <laughs> and I just sat there stunned. And when they were finished, they said, well, that's, that was our song. So it was like this incredible glimpse into this woman who supposedly denied her culture and her old ways.
1: Do you think she, quote, denied her culture in front of you guys to protect you guys?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For us to grow up and be good little Christians. And, it
1: doesn't sound like she was indoctrinated by it. It sounds like she wanted to make sure you guys didn't have to endure the same abuse she did.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. But I the the big difference that I saw between my grandpa and my grandma was that she had this underlying anger all of the time, and my grandpa never did. And yet, my grandpa never was seen in church. I never saw him in church, Uh, and my grandma was there all the time. And it wasn't a conscious thing for me until I was older, and I would go back as a teenager living in Victoria. I got on a bus in Victoria and got off the bus in Prince Rupert, Oh, that's to long. go and fish with my grandpa.
1: Well, how did you guys get to Victoria? Did your parents uproot you guys and bring the whole yeah, family there? Yeah, when
2: I was 16, I guess when I was 14 or 15, my mom and dad decided that uh, Hazleton wasn't enough. And my mom was still teaching school, but she was teaching school. On, in those days, it was called a senior matric. And it was a person who graduated from high school, like grade 13. Oh, So she was very... She was smart intellectually. So she was teaching, the whole time she was teaching here, she was teaching without a degree. And she made up her mind that they were moving to Victoria and Dad could get a job somewhere there like he always did. He wound up being a longshoreman. And with six children, Mom went back to school, got her teaching degree, (laughs) (laughs) and kept on teaching. She taught for 40-something years, 42 years.
1: Wow. Yeah. She's ambitious. (laughs) Yeah. So what did... Drive, a lot of drive, (laughs) a lot of stubbornness. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, Irish, now you know why, right? Yeah. (laughs) So at that point in your life, were you thinking about going into art? Did you have any artistic tendencies at that point?
2: Oh, I was shaking my head as you were asking the question, and then I realized, no, I've been drawing... My grade two teacher, that we got a second teacher in Kit Katla when I was in grade two, and I used to have to write on the blackboard, I will not draw in arithmetic class. <laughs> and then I'd have to write on the blackboard, I will not draw in English class. So I I guess I was drawing all of the time. And I realized as I grew up looking back at it, when we got to Hazleton my favorite presents for Christmas were paint-by-number. So I could spend hours and hours and hours drawing or doing paint-by-numbers. And I don't know where that came from. It's just in my DNA. And so for me, I was the eldest of six kids. I was always responsible for them because I'm the oldest. And I'm the oldest son in in the old culture, which was handed down carried all of the responsibilities but also got a big name when you grew up so if your uncle was a the chief then you were in the running to carry on that name okay and names are passed down like crests from generation to generation to generation so the the chiefs names that are carried are nobody knows how old they are because they're they come from way before written history which is not very long ago (laughs) so the whole drive for me was to find out what a simshan is and i ignored the haida and the hiltsuk uh, because i wanted to be ethnocentric
1: What does that mean exactly?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to concentrate on my nation's art. Sure. What I didn't realize was my nation's, plural, were Haida, Simshan, and Heiltsuk, three completely different nations with completely different languages, different styles of art. And so as I strove to find out who I was, I became enamored and just fell in love with the art. And I never lost uh, sight of the fact that the world is ignorant to our culture. They don't know what a Simshin is. Most of them know what Haida is now because of the...
1: um, It's marketed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah.
2: For me... um, I began to look at the northern cultures from, from Bella Bella, Alert Bay, north, as one.
1: How many nations are there?
2: Oh, well, there are five main nations just on the coast. So in the north, there's the Haida and Simshan. When you get down to Kittisu, um Klemtu, you're on the southernmost territory of the Simshan. And then it changes to Hiltzook. Hiltsuk is, I don't know if it's Kwagyoth or Kwakwala, but Hiltsuk speak a language that is related to Alert Bay, who are Kwakwala people, Kwagyoth. And it, it's like Gitxen is Simshan.
1: Oh, the And the, the Gitsenish- dialect's
2: just a little different than the old language, they call. Right. So our Simshan language here in Hazleton is called the old language.
1: And the school here... Still teaches that. Yeah,
2: they teach the language. But this is another point I want to get to sooner or later. (laughs) we got so much. We're going to be doing this quite a bit.
1: I know, I might need to come back. (laughs) Yeah,
2: because the language is... Culture is predicated by the land, by your environment. So cultures change around the world. And they're all different, but they're all the same because they are related to the earth and the rhythm of nature. And so... If I lose my language, which I have, so now I don't know which language I should call my language, uh, but I guess Simshan, because that's where I was born, that's the village I'm from. Matrilineally, my grandmother and her grandmother and her grandmother are all Simshan. So if I can't learn my language, but I am close to the land, and I'm still out there hunting and fishing and feeling the river run through my legs and feeling the, what the ocean feels like and the tides and the movement and which way the wind's blowing and what the sky's like and what the season is, which moon it is. Well, I'm in tune with the world that I live in. Not the money world and the house and all of that, but what sustains us, which is nature. And so I might lose my language but I won't ever lose my relationship to the earth. And that is really the basis of language. So people today say, you lose your language, you lose your culture. Not true. You lose your your relationship to the environment, and you lose your culture.
1: That makes sense. So
2: there are people speaking the language who have no idea of their culture. And they think in English. So they may speak the language and they sound Simshan or, or Gitxan, but they think in English. And so really, they've lost their language. They can speak words, but the words that they speak are interpreted into English. So they're thinking in English, but speaking this other language. So what happens when you grow up? with a language that talks about the winds and your ancestors and their spirits who are part of you their their bodies who are part of yours and how they're part of the land but you are part of them so you you are part of the land and if you lose connection to the land you lose connection To yourself. So all of the money in the world, all of the education in the world, all of the so-called successes that our society calls successes are empty promises. Success to me is being happy knowing who you are and what you're connected to. The language is about which moon it is, and there's 13 moons not 12 and the moons are mostly about food october is a month of digging clams in kitkatla november is a month of cockles december is the time to give kind of like the christian way to yeah, do. potlatching say. that's potlatching season was in the winter because there's nothing else to do by november the cockles are the last food that you can go out and gather so November, December, January, February, people are staying in one place, eating and passing knowledge down from one generation to the next in stories and songs. That's what a potlatch is about. It's kind of like opera. Masks and costumes are all carved and all to serve the purpose of telling a story. Right. And that's what the potlatch is about. So I, intelligence was passed down from generation to generation through the winter time through the food gathering time no time for that we got to get out there so it was a beautiful way of teaching because your life was lived on the land then in the winter time your life was lived in the house with all of your family and all of your relatives and everybody's having a big party you know no booze but it's yeah. this big party where people are singing and laughing and telling stories together and sharing their stories so an incredible culture and once i began to learn that i got lost in the art and because i always loved creating and drawing it was just a natural for me to i never ever thought that i would be a get paid I had a regular job. I was a fireman in the city. Who were you? I was in the fire department in Saanich, and I quit when I was 27 years old. I retired and became an artist.
0: Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping, MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com.
1: How did it start? Did you go to post-secondary school for art?
2: No. I graduated from high school in Victoria, and I was headed to college, but I was headed to college... To, I was just going to do one year, and then I was going into the RCMP.
1: Why did you want to be in the RCMP?
2: Well, that goes all the way back to the village. When I was a kid growing up in the village, um, the fanciest boat that came into the <laughs> village was the RCMP boat. <laughs> right. It was called the ML-15, RCMP Motor Launch ML-15. And I'd go down there. It was really exciting because they brought a projector. They brought a generator. hmm and they carried everything up to the hall, and they showed it. My first movies were shown to me by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Oh, okay. And they were training videos showing the headquarters and where you go to. to they were recruiting
1: so you didn't have any resentment then no, about no. about the police?
2: Are you kidding? They had the nicest boats <laughs> that anybody could ever dream of having. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so And they were nice guys. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have that fear of the RCMP once I got to know them. But I remember that boat coming and immediately paying attention. Whoa, listen to that. And I was with my Uncle Roy. And he just, his mouth dropped. And he said, it's the cops. And he was scared. And yeah. I thought, why is he scared of the cops? Who are the cops? <laughs> what is a cop? And it turned out it was the RCMP. When I saw their training videos, I thought, gee, uh, they have a swimming pool and they can swim in the wintertime there. <laughs> I think I'm going to go there and I'm going to be an RCMP. And as I grew up, I, when we moved to Hazleton, I was bullied because I was uh, seaweed picker from the coast and I was living with stick Indians up here. So I got picked on a lot just because I was the new kid on the block.
1: We should make some, just let people know because you were from a coastal village and now we're really interior here. Way
2: up, yeah. We're
1: moose country here. How
2: many, 200 miles from the coast. Mm -hmm. So living up here, I, I, I had a short temper. I was just a little kid. So when I was 10, 11. By the time I was 12, I think I made it to five foot, but I was like 95 pounds soaking wet. I was jockeying. I was riding horses here. I grew up uh, riding thoroughbreds for a guy by the name of Alan Benson who lived in Two Mile, not far, like just down at the end of the road from where we were. So I was this little kid who loved horses and I was a, I grew up riding and loving riding And there was this one bully from Kispiox who used to pick on me all the time, and I'd lose my temper and forget that he was way bigger than me, and so I got beat up. I thought, okay, I'm going to go and take uh, boxing lessons from the RCMP. The sergeant was a boxing instructor, so I went and took (laughs) boxing lessons from him and got to know the cops, and they were all friends. But then I made friends with a couple of guys in Hazleton, and I thought that the bullies quit picking on me because I learned to box. No, they quit picking on me because the Smith family and the Marshall family were friends of mine. And the Smith family were half-breeds like me, but I didn't know that. Their mother was from the Gittin' Max people and their father was Scotty, a Scotsman. And he worked for Marshall Brothers. And the family... the. Raymond Smith's mum was part of the Patsy family, and they they just had uncles and aunts all over Gittin Max and in Kespex, and the bullies knew that so. They left me alone.
1: You're like the little grizzly. You ever seen that movie where this, the little grizzly and he finally turns around to attack the cougar? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, ah, and the cougar goes away. But the cub doesn't realize his mama's behind him, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: That's what it was like. So
1: you made your first art piece. Like, How did that well, all happen? Well, so,
2: so, yeah, we got off track there. So There's so many things. It's just like I'm 72 years old now, and there's all of these memories, and some of them are just like yesterday. When I got to Victoria... And I began to study. I wanted to go to university, but I I really wanted to get into the RCMP. And I applied, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to university. I'll study when I get into the RCMP. So I got... a letter from the RCMP that I had passed their initial inspection and I wasn't part of a criminal family or anything. So they would accepted me. So the only thing I had to do was go and take my medical. I thought, no problem. I'll go down there and pass this medical like nothing. <laughs> sure. So, you know, 20 years old in good shape and I went down there and I did everything and it was really good. So I went into this room and they examined my eyes and uh, it was discovered that I'm colorblind. It's always the eyes. <laughs> colorblind. It's
1: always that colorblindness, yeah. yeah. Oh.
2: So I became an artist. <laughs> <laughs> <Perfect>. Colorblind artist. <laughs> but I, I told my art teacher what had happened and he said, so what are you going to do? Your
1: high said, school art teacher?
2: Yeah. Kay. He was a friend of mine until he died. I said, well, Mr. West, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go... To university and study art, I'm going to be an artist. And he looked at me and he said, Well, do an old man a favor. Don't do that. Don't allow the academy, the academics, to tell you what you have to learn to be an artist. Mm. You study the art you like, you work at finding out who you are. And everybody is unique. There's no one like me, there's no one like you. You're different from all your brothers and sisters. If you can find out who you are and you can create from that place, you'll be doing something that no one else can do. And so that's that. I took his advice. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study anthropology. Because one of my teachers from the museum in Victoria was an anthropologist, and he was the one that... Talk to me about Haida and Simshan, and that's where I learned about culture. And uh, I got a job in the fire department, and so I stayed there for seven years. And the whole time, I continued to study my art and the culture of my father's people and was proud of it, and that's how I became an artist.
1: Were you mostly doing paintings then?
2: Yeah, painting okay. and carving.
1: And it's always been, I mean, what would I call you? Like work? Indian, Indian art. Indian <laughs> art? Is that, God,
2: that's yeah, blo- looking people at have Indian me so scared
1: and, nowadays to even say anything.
2: It, it, it's, it's the intent behind everything that's important, not the vernacular. Yeah. So, I mean, most of us still use the word Indian. Most, most of the people my age, we're not, it's not. <laughs> offensive? <laughs> no, it, yeah. It's, we still have so much to learn and. For me, the reason that the art was so important was that I could teach poor, ignorant kids like the ones that didn't like me because I was an Indian.
0: Mm -hmm. They
2: didn't have any idea of the people of this coast. They only knew about drunks that they saw in downtown Victoria. So I became an artist to be a teacher.
1: Because your art is all, I mean, they're all stories. I'm looking around your house right now, which is honestly like a gallery. Uh, and all of these paintings have a story behind them, don't they?
2: They do. And that's the, there's the other thing. When I first began the art, I was very traditional, uh, Northwest Coast style. Well, I discovered that I was Haida, Simshen, and Hiltzok, and I should just do what I want to do. And then I realized, because I was successful right away, the first year that I started my art career, I made $140,000. Back then? 1974. Jeez. A lot of money.
1: Just just so that people know this. I mean, your art has been, The Queen Elizabeth has a piece of your art. Yeah. Bill Clinton has a piece of your art. Yeah. Okay, so yes, yeah, so you were making a killing.
2: So I did really well, and I thought, okay, this is not as bad as my dad made it out to be, and I wasn't going to be a starving artist for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, I, and it just went from there. And so there were a couple of things. I promised myself when I began my career as an artist, well, first of all, when I started doing the artwork, everyone should say, well, this is what, you should be doing this, not being a fireman, including the fireman. And so I started to look a little more seriously at it. I went down. There was a carver, Henry Hunt, who was carving in the Provincial Museum in Victoria, outside in in the carving shed. And I used to go down there every weekend and just hang and watch. And finally he said, Hey, pal, uh, you want to try this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, come on in. So I climbed over the fence and he handed me a knife and that was it. Henry was the man who said... PayPal, you should go to Hazleton. Uh, there's a place there called Ksan, and they study, they teach your style of artwork from the north.
1: Oh, in Hazleton? Now in Hazleton.
2: I, I grew up in Hazleton. <laughs> oh, well, you should go back there. You should go to the art school there. So oh.
1: that's how I wound
2: up back in Hazleton. Wow. At the age of 27... I pulled the plug in the fire department, came up here, but I just got a leave of absence. Mm. So I went to one year at Cassan, and I went back to work, and the guys on the job, I could work on the night shift, I could actually do my artwork. And the guys were just even more emphatic, what'd you come back here for? Look at what you're doing here, you can make a living doing this right now. And I thought, oh yeah, that's easy for you to say, you got a good job here. Would you quit this job and be an artist? Well, no, but I don't have your talent. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm I'm coming back here. So when the next season came to go back to art school, I asked for a leave of absence again, and they granted it to me. And the art school didn't open in September like it was supposed to, but I'd already, I went on a short holiday to Mexico. And coming back from Mexico, I heard that, Cassand wasn't opening until January.
1: Oh, but your leave was for September.
2: Yeah. So I stayed in Mexico. Okay. (laughs) I I was driving across the desert uh, near Needles in Arizona. And I'd been in Mexico for three months. Mm -hmm. I almost got thrown in jail because I overstayed my two-week visa, <laughs> sure. and uh, they wanted to know how I could afford to be there for so long, and, and I didn't tell them that I took Spanish in school. and I was playing in a band. Oh. I was making a dollar a song, and I was a salesman for the band because I could speak English. Sure. And we had to sing for gringos, Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I came back, I'm driving across the desert, glad I'm heading home in this old Volkswagen Westphalia. And I, I broke down in the middle of the desert emotionally. Mm. I pulled over to the side of the road and I was sobbing and I couldn't, I didn't know what was happening. And when I finally figured it all out, I just came from a country where there is no welfare. There is no unemployment insurance. There's, if you don't work, you don't make money. And these people lived in dirt floor huts in a little village up in the mountains and they were all happy as could be. <laughs> and I, I made the connection to my childhood. And I'm driving across the desert. I stop and I'm crying and crying and I think, what the hell are you afraid of, Roy? Roy, you live in a beautiful country. If you can't make it as an artist, you can always get a job. Uh and if you d- can't get a job right away, well you can you can collect welfare. I mean you, you you just you should just quit the fire department before you get to Kazan and you pretty much have to now because you just spent 3 months <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of your That's leave <laughs> of absence. And uh I made up my mind then so I got back to Victoria just before Christmas. In 1973, called the fire department, told them I wasn't coming back, and I came back to Hazleton, to Cassan, in January of 74, knowing that when I finished art school, I was on my own and would have to make it as an artist. Perfect. And I did. <laughs> i doing it ever since.
1: So when did you meet your wife in all of this?
2: Uh, oh, well, that's another story. <laughs> that's another <laughs> podcast, because I was... Married and divorced, married and divorced, married and divorced. Oh, married and divorced. Wait, what? (laughs) Okay. Before, before Andrea, and the last one was a common law marriage. So it was. I found out it was exactly the same whether you get married in church or not. Surprise! And uh, when that marriage fell apart, I was, I, I broke. I was, I was suicidal. When I, uh, this is another whole, when I was a young guy growing up, my mom was always away teaching and my dad was always away working somewhere. And I was always responsible for five kids. So when I got into my teens, it was horses. So I never had time for girlfriends. Sure. uh, Until I got to Victoria. The first girl that i wound up in bed with i married
1: oh, okay yeah
2: i divorced five years later and did the same thing again right and then again okay i'm a slow learner <laughs> so i went i went through this this really tumultuous time and the only thing that kept me sane was my art okay. every painting was like a life ring yeah it was it was what kept me alive I wound up going through a, a process of recovery. I went to a place in Arizona to deal with addictions and found out that I I could change the way I think, change the way I am.
1: Did you have an addiction? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Were you? Was it alcohol?
2: No, sex, sure. women, and alcohol was just a tool. Yeah. So. I thought I was an alcoholic. I wound up in a, in a, in a, in a group of seven women and my uh, Maggie was the one in control. And so I found out real quick what my real problem was. Yeah. And I, had, I was surrounded by people who could help me. So, so you, walked out you of have that- to go through um, uh, telling your story to a circle of women, they're going to nail you pretty fast if if it's women that you you're always have always been your problem.
1: Do you have a particular piece of art in your life that that is symbolic of that time? Um, is there one piece that you look at that and no one else knows that there's a story of you in it, but you know All of them. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone cuz they're all like life rings. Right. Um yeah, no one piece until I went through the meadows in Arizona and came back and it took a number of years for me to create an image called Getting My Spirit Back.
1: Okay. And it's a
2: famous piece today.
1: Oh, I'm going to look this one up. Yeah. Okay, so I'm still stuck in 74. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between 74 and and today. Yeah. But but from a career stance, you got you obviously became quite successful. Did,
2: yeah, it was right out of the blocks. I mean, the
1: airport, you, you if you the
2: 7 years I worked on the airport.
1: Right, the art yeah. in the airport. Yeah. I mean, you're a national treasure.
2: I was the I was the in-house art I was on the board at YVR. So I was the in-house artist and advisor to to the YVR board to make the airport what it is today.
1: You've had this big life.
2: It's been crazy.
1: And it's still big. But yeah. now you're back in the small town. I mean, you've been here for a long time, but you're back in the small town. You're watching your children grow up. You're you're watching the culture or the lack thereof yeah. around you today. And yep. I mean, you and I had quite a wonderful discussion on Thanksgiving about, you know, this village. Or do you ever do you feel like you have a role or do you feel an overwhelming amount of weight in this town to, to lead by example?
2: Yes and no. It's not a weight. It's my life. I became an artist to teach. So to me, I'm a teacher to Indigenous people, the Gitxsan here. I'm a teacher to everyone else out there. I'm a keynote speaker, so my biggest work has been in the education system. They're the ones that have brought me in to speak more than anyone else. The most important subject in school is actually art, because it will... I had to learn English that I hated to write down the stories,
1: Mm. because
2: they're all stories. Every image is a story. And I learned early that people wanted to hear the story once they saw the piece. And once they heard the story and attached it to the piece, whichever story moved them the most, they had to have. And so I learned... I learned to write and went back to English because of my art. I had to learn how to draw massive totems and paintings on these big buildings. So I had to learn math. How do you, how can you, the image has to be created mathematically so that it can be transposed to this massive piece. So to me, art is, art is what connects us to everything else. And the process of creativity is a spiritual process. Inspiration, the word inspiration comes from a Latin word, inspiritus, and it literally means the breath of God respirating, being breathed into us. That's what inspiration means. So the very word is spiritual. So if you can connect to creativity, again we come back to the land and you can be close to the land and be close to the spirit of your ancestors and the spirit of the creator of all, then you never have a dry, I I have more inspiration today than I've ever had in my life. Why? Because I'm older, wiser, more experienced, and I know that if I stay true to inspiration, I will, will always be successful because that's the way it's been from the get-go. So the promise I made as a young artist to be to only work from inspiration has opened all of these doors and created this huge story that people will find out about after I'm gone. And it just involves millions of people from all over the world. And to me the Xen and the Tsimshian, the people on the reserves here probably won't understand what it is that I've been trying to do
1: until I'm gone. Is what you're teaching something that is just focused on the indigenous community or can it be translated to every young person who wants to who should be Everybody. outside?
2: Okay, so here's here's what I've learned about the ignorance of we human beings. I never use the term racism. There's one race of humans. We we all belong to it. There aren't different races of humans, just different cultures and skin colors, and we're all one. And when you understand that the earth is your mother, well, she's my mother too. And your mother is part of the earth, and if she's gone, all of your ancestors are part of the earth. So we are connected in a way that we cannot even understand until we come to this place of realizing We are all children of the earth and the sooner we can get there to understanding that, the less we see of our differences and the more we see of our likenesses and the more we get to know each other. um, There are those that we're connected to or that we like because there are chords struck in us somewhere that are played by our connection to someone else. So, we're like this musical instrument. And my talking to you, if there's some connection that you feel, it's beyond, it may come from somewhere else. It's not for us to understand that. It's for us to be doing what we're doing and be connecting to each other and making the world a better place. So, I'm colorblind, literally. I'm colorblind culturally as well. So, to me, you're First Nations. To me, you're indigenous because everybody's indigenous to somewhere in the world, and all of the old earth-based spirituality, not religion, is the same. The sweat lodge is found all over the world. It's not. It doesn't belong to First Nations peoples of North America, although a lot of them think it's it's ours, (laughs) but it's not. It's humankind, and it's anthropologists. It's a storyteller that taught me that. Uh, Anjalees Arian, she wrote a book called The Fourfold Way. And as an anthropologist, she traveled around the world, and the more people she met and heard their stories, the more she realized the great truth that we really are one family.
1: I know I'm going to get questions from my listener, and I'll follow up with you after the holidays, but is there anything that you would like to add that I may have missed?
2: In our society, it is not talked. In our society, we actually put down emotionalism, especially among men. Mm-hmm. Among women, it's more acceptable. Well, what's that about? Uh, am, I, am I weak because I cry? No. I'm stronger because I, I, I'm not ashamed of the tears. They're real. There's a reason for it. Find out what the reason is and deal with the reason. Don't try and push down the emotion because you're denying yourself. They're your emotions. And if we don't understand our emotions and process what we're feeling, we are lost. People live their whole lives and never understand what it's about. And if we understand our emotions, we have all of this... Healing comes from processing joy and pain. Fear gives us wisdom. If you're on the top of a mountain and it drops straight off the side there, you step away from the edge of the mountain because it's a very wise thing to do. You're going to get hurt if you stay there. So there, all of our emotions have gifts that give us. So to me, one of the most important things we have to learn is how to process our emotions, how to even understand what they are. And so I'll, I'll just leave with this one last story. I was working with a minister of education, and we were in a, at a board table, and I was one of the knowledge keepers, they called me, to explain to them how First Nations passed on education. Well, that's easy for me because it's been my life study. So it's stories. It's our relationship to the land. That's what's important. Not not to some degree. Not it, it's how we live in this world and how we take care of the earth that gives us our sustenance. Money doesn't. It's the environment that does. And so, if we come to this place where we understand our emotions then we can move through the world connected to whatever's happening and this this um psychologist after the meeting came to me and he said so you understand that creativity and emotions are rooted in the same place in your brain i said well i i i know it but i don't understand it i don't even know what part of the brain except that it's somewhere near the front And he said, yes, it's actually the frontal cortex of your brain where your emotions are seated. And do you know, this is what he said to me, do you know that a child, from the time it's in its mother's womb and can hear and understand, it can hear what's going on outside, but it can feel every emotion that its mother carries. And do you know that from that point, until the child learns its first word, it integrates more knowledge than it will for the rest of its life. Before we can learn to speak, we have already learned more than we ever will from all of the teachers and professors and everybody in the world. We will never bring in as much information and integrate it, make it part of us than we did then. And the way we do it is with our emotions. A child's emotions are connected completely. A child can feel the emotions of everybody in the room because that's the way we're made. And and touch. So when you touch a child and you look at a child and it looks right in your eyes and you love it and it, It feels from your touch and from your eyes the love that you have, but before that it already knows you love it. So if we can come back to that place and be connected to our emotions and be emotional, we will come to the core of who we are and be able to relate to the world around us.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored online.
0: legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment a life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life
2: yeah baby six eight western i'll be there, baby
0: right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv